We just finished verses 1 through 4 in the book of Philippians, which is a, a section on God's method for unity in His church. It's a profound and practical guide to Christian harmony. If you want to know how to make sure that Christians get together, or you want to know what is the Lord's greatest desire, which is unity in His church, then, then you look at verses 1 through, through 4. And Paul started by giving us the motivations for unity in verse 1. It's, it's, the, it's the why of unity. Why even do what, what's described here? And that unity, that, that motivation, I should say, comes from all that God has done for us in Christ because there's encouragement in His work, because there's consolation in God's love, there's fellowship and affection in the Spirit's ministry. Those are all extraordinary motivations to seek unity in, in the church. And, and then after the motivation, He defines unity for us. In, in verse 2, the target that we're aiming at, like, what is unity? It's we said it's not some cheap conformity masquerading as, as unity where everybody believes the same thing. It's, but it's one heart and one mind and one soul for the gospel's work because the gospel unifies us, not anything else. And it bridges every gap that there, that there is because we're all sinners and we come to God the same way. We, we come through the, the same blood, the, the Lord Jesus Christ and and his cross. And so he defines unity and then he ends with God's method to pursue this unity. In verses 3 and 4, it's the how. We must do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind we regard one another more important than ourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And he gave us five methods. That gave us five methods to to apply, to attain unity. You deny self-interest, you disown self-glory, you develop a slave-like attitude, you disavow self-focus, and you deliver service to others. That's, that's where we ended. And Paul completed this entire passage by reminding us of the perfect archetype who illustrates all of that for us. And that's in verse 5. Look at verse 5. This is where we'll pick up today. It says, Have this attitude or mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says Jesus Christ perfectly illustrates the means and the the marks and the motivations of of spiritual unity. He is the summary of everything that Paul just completed. He is the epitome of of humility. And today, the the great apostle is going to turn the coin over on the other side. If you think of it this way, verses 1 through 4 is like the, the tail side of the coin. It's the practical side. What we must do. Verses 1 through 4 is all about what we do. The motive, our motivations, our means, our, our, our methods to accomplish what God's exhorting us to, to do. Now he's going to turn that coin over to the, to the head's side. Or the theological side. And we're going to see what Christ has done. What we must do and now what Christ has done. And we'll see the, the depths that, that he'll go to to redeem you and bring about this, this unity. Literally, the depths that he'll go to. So, in verses 6 through 11, Paul sandwiches together two things. It's the humiliation of Christ in verses 6 through 8, and then the exaltation of Christ in verses um, 9 through 11. Hence, the title, Humbled and, 
and exalted. And they go together. They, they can't be separated. He starts with the humiliation of Christ because that is the basis of Jesus' exaltation. His willing work is the reason for his comprehensive coronation one day. I mean, he is the obedient servant who will reign as the coronated Lord one day. They, they, they go together. Christ's humiliation was a rescue mission. And Christ's exaltation will be a, a ratifying declaration before all of, all of creation. His humiliation was for the salvation of sinners, which he purchased with his blood. And his exaltation will be to establish the worship of all creation, those purchased and those, those not, in heaven or in the earth, those redeemed and those, those damned, the elect angels and the, the fallen ones, all of creation. It says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord over all. And this passage that we have is, is very familiar to us, and so I'm always hesitant when you come to a passage that, that, that you know and that you know well, because, as they say, familiarity can breed contempt. It, it, it won't land like the thud that, that it should. You know, when we are, are saved for a while, we use terms like redeemed and justified, and, and we, just, we just automatically assume what's packed in, all, you know, in, in, that, in that term, and, and we don't dwell on the the significance of them. You can do that with, with, with this passage, but just as it's familiar with us, it, it was also familiar to the early church. It was likely sung as a hymn, this entire section, two stanzas, that humiliation and in the exaltation. But Paul pins it here as the ultimate example of, of our humility, which is Christ. And I want you to learn from this passage, not only just the example of, of humility, I want you to learn from the passage, I want you to see the depths that Christ went to in order to, to save you. I think that's probably what's the thud that God wants, the way He wants it to land on your heart. Not to-dos, but, but what's been done. What level of commitment do you think that Jesus has for you as a believer? Well, this passage answers that. I mean, to what lengths will he go to save you as a sinner this morning if you don't know him? This passage shows you the lengths that, that he'll go. How did he accomplish both of those things all the while remaining holy and just in his judgment of sin? This passage reveals it. 1 John 3, 1 declares, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the, the children of God. And this passage is that love to behold. It, it's laid out before us. We get to see it express. The, the love that the Father had for us comes in the passage, echoed in the passage, you know well, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. See, you know that verse so well that it doesn't, it doesn't hit you the way that it should. <laughs> That's the expression of the Father's love, that He loved you so much that He gave His Son. Well, here is the expression of the Son's love for you. You get to see it expressed step by step. 
The actual depths that he will go is described here. Each downward step reveals the the distance his love compels him to travel. Each stoop reveals another level of his heart and his undaunted commitment to rescue. There are five total. There is a, the first one is a preparation, if you will, or a, a precursor. And then there are four plunges. All They all combine five steps of Christ's humiliation. The first one is no fancy outline here. It's exactly laid out as the text says. He laid aside his regal position. The next step, he, he took the form of a lowly servant. And Number three, he was born in the likeness of a man. And, and number four, he humbled himself in obedient death. And number five, he, he died by degrading crucifixion. He went from deity to slave. If he didn't get that, it'll come again, don't worry. He went from deity to slave, from God to man, from man to death, and not just death, like death as, the, as an old age, of old age, but, but death to crucifixion. That's the way this passage lays out. This is the first stanza of the song. And he begins with this, this first step which is he laid aside his regal position. Look, if you would, at verse verse 5. Here's the bridge. This is like the hinge that that swings the door between what we do and what Christ has, has done. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 explains the preparation for what takes place in the verses that that, that follow. Long before he came to us, the mind of Christ or the attitude of Christ that he possessed was, was one of humility. That mind, or more appropriately, that heart, is what moved him to fulfill what, what follows. And Paul uses a word here that the mind or attitude, that literally means a disposition. It was Christ's disposition. Have this disposition, this frame of mind, to think in such a way, to purpose, to be inclined towards something. It's an attitude, as in a state of mind, that that you form. But Jesus didn't form it. He he always had it. You're commanded to to form this attitude. Jesus didn't have to be commanded to form this attitude. It's It's part of His very nature. I mean, when we use the term prepare, this prepares us to see what Christ did. This gives us the reason why He, he, he did it. He didn't have to prepare in the sense of psyching Himself up for, for, for coming or to train for it. It shows us His heart. It shows us who He is, not, not what He became. Notice it says, let this heart be in you which was in Christ Jesus. It's, it was already there. And Jesus doesn't change. It's been there for all eternity. Or since He was, there was never a beginning to Christ. Christ, the unchanging one, this verse says, is humble and stooping towards sinners. That's His very nature. That nature that has always existed is what moved Him to descend, which is what comes in verses 6 and following. And so Paul gives us that precursor in, in verse 5. Or what prepares us for the action that follows in, in verse 6. It's, it's the why that he did it. The first act was to, was to lay aside his rightful position, or 
his regal position as, as king. Look, look at if we go to verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Beginning in verse 7. Kind of all goes together there. Now, of course, no one descends, which is what you have here, the descent of Christ. No one descends without stepping down from an ascended position or ascended place. And that's what verse 6 is describing to us. C.S. Lewis said, like, like a diver that first must disrobe from his normal garments before he, he plunges into the depths in order to retrieve something at, at the bottom of the sea, so Christ must lay aside his heavenly glory before he descends into his creation. And then like a diver, he, he plummets into the, into the water. And, and when you first hit that water, it, it still maintains some of the sun. The water is green and, and there's a warm region. And then the deeper that the, that the diver goes, he goes into, into black and cold where the, where the pressure grows, the deeper that he gets. And, and finally, he reaches the bottom and, and seeing his prize, he he thrusts in his hands into the muck and the sludge of decayed matter that's, that lays there at the, at the bottom. And once he lays hold of his treasure, he thrusts back up again in the color and light until he breaks the surface with treasure in hand. And this passage says, You are that treasure that he plunged to get at the bottom of the earth. It's an excellent picture of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul says Jesus was equal with God and yet chose not to exercise that, that right that wasn't his disposition. He existed as God and he did not regard his equality with the Father as a position or prize to hold on to. That wasn't his heart. This, this verse tells us in order to come to us, Jesus had to voluntarily and temporarily give up the honors of heaven first. The word Paul uses here, who although he existed in the form of God, is the word morphe, where you get the term metamorphosis, like, like a shape or change. It's, it literally refers to, to, to a form that's, that's equal, that equals your essence. It, we would say that the outside matched the, the inside. Jesus existed as God. That's the way you should think about that. Because He was God in His very nature. Jesus proclaims that over and over and over in the, in the New Testament. I mean, you can see that. I mean, the Pharisees didn't get angry with Jesus because He performed miracles and He healed people and He, and he showed them up, which He did. They knew exactly what He was saying whenever He said, Before Abraham was, I am. He knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was claiming that he was equal with the Father. And they called him a blasphemer for that. A blasphemer is somebody who makes themselves equal with God. But Jesus wasn't a blasphemer. He was able to say that because he was equal with God. Because he was God. That's what Paul says here. And while he held this exalted position, it was his very nature... He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, that's a very cumbersome translation. 
that means to grab spoils. The word means to grab spoils like a burglary, uh, like in a burglary, which is why it says robbery. Figuratively, it means to, to grab something or hold it or, or seize it for, for one's own advantage, like, like somebody who would rob you. They come in and they, they take that for, them, for themselves. Verse 6 means that although Jesus was God and, and he had the rights of God, he chose not to seize those rights for himself and he chose not to exercise them, even though he had every one of those rights. And he could have demanded everyone to bow the knee. Then, instead, he laid aside those rights to accomplish the will of the Father and for our benefit. You might think of it this way. Have you ever tied up one of your arms in a sling or, or played a game? Maybe you boxed with your younger brother with one arm tied behind your back. In those cases, you didn't lose the use of your arm. It was still there. It was just as strong. You just voluntarily set aside its use. It's like Christ. He came. Jesus had, had the rights. He had the divinity. He had the glory. He just willingly laid those aside to come to us. He had full rights of the Father. He chose not to exercise them so he could come to us, so he could descend. John MacArthur said, though Christ had all the rights and privileges and positions and honor of deity, which he was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, his attitude was not to cling to those things or position, but to be willing, uh, but to, be willing to, to give them up for a season. And that's a key, for a season. Jesus will receive them again as he ascended back to the Father. Glorify me with the, with the glory that that I once had. The transfiguration was, a, was a, a peek into that glory revealing to the three on the, on the mountain. And the exaltation, the, that same glory will be manifest one day when Christ is exalted as, as, as Lord over all. But, but before we get there, he, he doesn't claim that even though he had a right to it so he could come to you. So long before Jesus ever stepped down from heaven, he stooped willingly in his heart and that led us to, leads us to the second descent. The second step in Christ's humiliation is he, he took the form of a slave. Look at you at verse 7. But emptied himself, Paul says, by taking the form of a, of a slave or a servant or a, or a bond servant. Being more, born in the, the likeness of men. But he starts here by taking the form of a servant. And after the preparation comes the, comes the plunge. And he went from, from deity to, to slave, literally doulos, a, a bond slave. That's lower than a, than a hired servant. It's, it's, it's a slave. They have no rights. Their, their, their only purpose is to serve the ones that, they are, that they're bound to. This verse, verse 7, he emptied himself, is, is what is called by some theologians the, the kenosis passage. It's taken from, from the word ekkenosin. It's The word can mean to empty, which has is, which is led to some heresy concerning Christ's deity. Like some have taught that when Jesus became, became a man, somehow he lost some of his divine attributes, which would make him less God, which is impossible. It's, it's heretical. 
but he didn't lose any of his deity when he was on the earth. He added sinless humanity. Something significant happened in the incarnation when Christ came. He didn't lose any of his deity. He added humanity. And in doing so, he, he took a, a lowly position. He, he took the form of a, of a bondservant. This is not talking specifically about his humanity yet. It goes from, from his position of equal with God to, to the position of a lowly servant. It says when Jesus came, he, he came in this position. But he never relinquished any of his godness. I mean, think about the chasm that's, that's traversed here between verse 6 and verse 7. I mean, he goes from deity to slave. He went from God, worthy of all worship, to, to a bondservant who, whose only task is to serve the, the ones that, that he's bound to. And Jesus declares that about himself, doesn't he? Matthew 20 and 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and specifically how he serves, to give his life a ransom for many. What's even more amazing is he served the, the ones that he created. I mean, you understand, I mean, you know Isaiah, you were created for God. You were created for God's glory. That's the reason that you exist. And here, it's turned completely on its head. Creator comes from heaven to serve His creation. That's His only purpose in coming. Those who couldn't serve themselves. Those who couldn't serve Him because they couldn't serve themselves. And it was His delight to do it. What's your idea of how Jesus approached this descent? I mean, what are your thoughts about what was going on in his heart about this kind of service. Do you enjoy serving other people? Well, I would say if you do, it's, it's the Spirit of God in you. Have you ever served somebody and you knew you had to do it because that's what you're supposed to do, but you really didn't want to do it? Is that what's going on in the heart of Christ? Whenever he does this, this is here. I mean, do you believe that he did it grudgingly, maybe out of pure obedience? Like, like this is the plan that, that, that we, the Trinity, have come up with, and therefore I must do it, even though I don't, I don't want to. Or maybe he only, he, he only did it to, to show how glorious he was, and he was and is glorious. That's how we normally think. But again, it's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. The exact opposite of what the Bible says. Hebrews 12.2 says it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God awaiting for this coronation when he'll be declared Lord over all. Christ was happy in his stooping. He was delighted in setting aside his glory. He was and is overjoyed in His service of you. Is that hard to grasp? That is hard to grasp. God 
a very God. The one who spoke and quasars came into existence. The one who can have a thought and mountains melt like wax takes joy in serving you as a sinner and a sufferer. Thomas Godman said, said, Jesus' own joy, comfort, happiness, and, and glory are increased and enlarged by His showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting sinners on earth. Maybe this illustration will, will help you. It did me. Dane Ortland said, Just like a compassionate doctor who travels deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has his medical equipment flown in. He's correctly diagnosed the, the problem. The antibiotics are prepared and available. He's independently wealthy, so, so he no need, has no need of any kind of, of compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the, the afflicted, Tribesmen refuse. They want to care for themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. And finally, a few young men in the tribe step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel at that moment whenever those first young men step forward to receive the care that he has for them. I'll tell you what what he feels. He feels joy. (laughs) His joy increases to the degree that more and more come, to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. That's the whole reason he came to them to begin with. And so it is with Christ. And I might add, dear Christian, his joy increases even more when it's not a stranger that comes to him for his medicine and his cleansing, but his own family. So don't think his joy in offering you forgiveness decreases after salvation. It increases after salvation. Isn't that what we we typically think the opposite, right? I mean, I get it. I mean, when I was unsaved and stupid and didn't know the Lord, God would have mercy on me. But now that I'm saved, I ought to know better. And so when I come back and ask for forgiving for that besetting sin or, or whatever it is, then, then he's surely going to be grudging men. It, it's exactly the opposite once more. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He is in heaven, this same Jesus, God-man, bodily raised from the dead, and his service continues in heaven even right now at this very moment. And he with great joy, goes to the Father and seeks your advocacy. You have a selfless rescuer, not a religious doctrine that saves you. Your Savior is a person. He's not a system. And He wants us to draw on His grace and mercy because it's who He is. He drew near to us in the Incarnation so that His joy could be fuller And ours could come. His joy is giving mercy. And ours is receiving it, isn't it? Just like a husband gets more relief and comfort in his wife's healing than his own. Again, the Puritan says, Christ brings into himself more comfort 
then appear curious to us. Is that how you think about Jesus? When you're coming to him, confessing once again, or maybe the first time? That he gets more joy from forgiving you and meeting your needs than you do in getting it? That's exactly what the Bible says. Or do you think that he does it almost because he has to? Like, like, like it's his obligation as God to dispense medicine to those who are beneath him who are finally smart enough to ask for it. That's not a biblical view of God. You've made a God in your own image and you have to come back to the Bible over and over and allow the Bible, which is God's revelation, his revelation, to tell you who he is in his heart and the way he is. No, that's not how he is. It's his joy. He gets joy from serving us in this way. And in order to do that, he had to take upon himself human likeness, literally humanity. It's the third step in Christ's humiliation. He was born in the likeness of a man. If you would at verse 7 again, here's the part we read earlier but didn't cover. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, from deity to servant, being born in the likeness of of men. He goes from deity to slave, and now he goes from God to man. Number two and three, they're they're bound together. Christ took the position of a servant, and, and it was in the substance of a man. Likeness. He was made in the likeness of men. Homoma, meaning to be made like something else in essence. It's not just in appearance, but but in substance. Now when it says Christ came in the likeness of men, it it means that that Jesus became more than just God in a human body. I mean, he took on all the essentials of humanity. Jesus was not God disguised as, as a man like the Dalai Lama or other false religions. He was a genuine human. He was the God-man. Fully human now, yet still completely God, as He always was. That's why it tells us, at the beginning of verse 6, He laid aside the exercise of, of, of His deity, because He always had it, and He always will have it. He has it right now. Nothing has changed. He's lost nothing. He, something was gained, though. What was gained was the attributes of, of a human. Jesus knew and experienced all the effects of the fall that we've been, we've been cataloging in Ecclesiastes. We've marched up through chapter 11. Jesus knew and experienced and felt all the effects of the fall without experiencing its cause, which is sin. He was human, yet without sin. He was without sin, and yet he was not without weakness or distress or emotion, or temptation, or hunger, or sorrow, or pain. And Hebrews tells us it's so that he could be a faithful high priest as he serves you. There's that concept of serving again. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Tempted in all things as we are, under the curse, living outside of the garden, yet without sin, very unlike us. 
You ever think about the concept in Catholicism where you go to the little booth and you get inside and you sit in this place, pull the curtain, there's a little slide over here. There's the priest or the guy on the other side and you tell him all your sins and foibles or whatever it is in order to get some type of, of pretend forgiveness. Does that priest know what you've been through when you tell him your sins? Maybe he's experienced some of the same, maybe he's done some of the same sins that you do or that you're even confessing at that moment. But he's a different person. He grew up in a different family. Everything's different about him. And then you may confess things to him that he's never experienced. But Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest in heaven, he is able to sympathize with your weakness because he was tempted in all things like we are. Why? Was he able to sympathize? Because, Because he felt it all. Notice the focus is on what he feels in this verse, in, in our weakness. He's able to sympathize. It's a tender affection. I mean, some people will say, well, if Jesus was without sin, how could, how could he ever experience what, what I have experienced, like temptation? And the answer to that is it's, it's a foolish question because it's just the opposite. Christ is the only one who has truly experienced the real extent of of temptation, because he's perfectly sinless. You've never experienced the level of temptation that Christ experienced being the sinless one. I mean, think of someone who is defiled, and they're being tempted to do something that's defiled or or worse. The pull that's there is not as great because they're already defiled. Versus maybe someone who's been living for the Lord or, or otherwise Christ's righteousness has been worked in them. The, the pull is greater. I mean, don't you see sin as even more sinful the closer that you get to, to the Lord? He felt temptation to a greater degree. Sinlessness doesn't mean he felt it less. It means he felt it more. So he understands to an even greater degree than what, than what you've been through. Again, Dane Ortland said, What would it be like for a friend to take our two hands and place them on the chest of the risen Lord Jesus so that like a stethoscope, letting us hear the vigorous strength of, of His beating heart, beating with the deepest affections and longings for you in the midst of your suffering and your sin and your temptations. You don't have to wonder. Hebrews 4.15 is that friend. It tells us how his heart beats and what's going on in his heart. He sympathizes. The word sympathizes has a prefix of with. It's not like a cool, detached pity. It's a solidarity. It's with us. It means our pain. Jesus is pained. It means in our suffering, He feels suffering. It means He feels it even though it's, it's not His, but He feels it as if it was. Hebrews 4.15, Ortland says, shows us the unrestrained withness of Jesus regarding His people. His love cannot be held back when He sees His people in pain. And it's being in the likeness of men that helps seal that, that bond. Paul goes, Paul goes on and says not only... Was he made in the likeness of man? He he was found in the appearance of man. Verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man. Now that may seem redundant, but it's not. It's necessary. 
Now, there's a profound difference there. Unlike the, the word for form, morphe, where, where you can hear our word morph, you, this word is, is schema, where you hear scheme. It means a shape or a form. And, and the difference between verse 7 and 8 is found in the two words, being made, being found. He was made this way. He was found by others this way. Jesus was made in the likeness of men, meaning his virgin birth. And he was found by others like any other man. I mean, if verse 7 was absent, and this is all we had, it would open us up to all kinds of heretical ideas, like Jesus was some kind of emanation from God or, or appearing figure and not, not a real man. But when you put both of them together, you have a real Christ you, who was a real man and appeared that way to others. And, and this appearance was part of his willful humbling. It's humbling because he was God and he was not recognized as God. Isn't that what Isaiah says? His form was comely. Born in Nazareth. You would have, you would have never chosen him as a king. He was seen as a man. It's humbling because God was not recognized as God when he came to his creation purposefully. He was despised and rejected. He came into his own, and his own received him not. And, and yet there's something even more profound here. He was a man. The first word indicates his substance was truly human. And he was proven to be one by the observation of others. And he was discovered by others to be a man. Their scrutiny, their examination of their senses, all says that Jesus was, was a man. The first one, he was made... This deep theology that's necessary for your salvation. Had Jesus not become a real human being, a true man, He would not have been able to fulfill what we failed to do. He wouldn't have been able to become our substitute and redeem us. But the second, He was found in appearance as a man. It was part of this humiliation. And while it's part of His humiliation that He was not recognized by some there's something that's there that you really should, should see. It implies that he was knowable and that he was approachable. I mean, think of this. The very nature of Christ, the way that he comes in order to redeem us, he comes purposely in such a way that he can be known, that we can reach him, that he can be observed. God comes to us in a way that we can approach Him. I mean, Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, sinners can approach God. And apart from Jesus Christ, sinners cannot approach God. God is the Holy Creator, and you're separated by Him by a great gulf. And even if you could bridge that gulf, you couldn't come before God. You'd be incinerated. But, but in Jesus Christ, the same God comes to us and comes in a way where we can see Him and approach Him and observe Him so that we can know Him and what He's doing for us in salvation. It's one of the marvelous purposes of the Incarnation. Jesus didn't glow like some superhero. <laughs> when He was young, He looked like a young Jewish boy. And then He walked among His disciples, they saw a Jewish man, and, and that was humbling for God. But for those 
that approached him, they were given spiritual eyes to see beyond the humanity to the deity that, that was there, even if dimly. You know how First John opens up? What was from the beginning? That's an echo of the created one, the one who created. You remember? In the beginning was the word. John is repeating that. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life, that life, the life, was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, came to us. They heard Him speak. They looked upon Him with their eyes. They touched Him. They studied Him, which is what that word means. And, and then they, they saw who He was, and now they're proclaiming Him as the, as the Messiah. He reveals Himself to those who come to Him. And His heart is spring-loaded, as one said. That with the faintest cry, the weakest inkling of need and turning toward Him, He comes. And He does that so He can be proclaimed by you after you receive Him to those who can't. Both of those are for revelation. Because He wants sinners to know Him. But there's more. There's more. He humbled Himself in obedient death. He went from deity to slave from God to man, and now from man to death. Now Paul shows the depths of his humiliation. Look, if you would, at verse 8. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Verse 7 and and 8 go together, and they're centered around the verbs. He, he, He emptied himself, and now here he humbled himself. He emptied himself, he laid aside the use or his rights, and now he humbles himself. They, they, they latch together. Jesus positioned himself to obey through his form and his coming, and then he humbled himself, and he obeyed the Father. Literally, he laid himself low to the point of death. Jesus wasn't just humbled by his position as a slave or by his form and his likeness whether people recognized him or not, he was humbled by obedience and his circumstance, and that circumstance was death. I mean, here's a God. Worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And in eternity, in the councils of, of the Trinity, the plan of salvation was designed and decreed, and creation was formed, and, and time begins, and it progresses, and then there comes a moment when God the Son must go take on the form of, of a man. And when he does, he he leaves the presence of the angels and enters the earth, the sin-cursed earth, and he lives among men who despise and reject him, and and he was God, a very God. He goes from from the purest place to the vilest. He goes from perfect worship to perfect hatred. He goes from songs of praise to shouts of disdain, all because he positioned himself in order to obey the Father's plan, and the Father's plan was to save you. despised and rejected by his own countrymen, by his own rabbis, by his own family, by his own disciples, and finally despised and rejected by his own father when he took your sin upon himself. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
And he does it willingly with a smile on his heart. And he does it for you. Is that mind-boggling? That's mind-boggling. And this humility ends in death. That's what verse 8 says. From man to death. Jesus said his death was the basis for your redeemed life. The Father didn't force Christ to die. Nobody took his life. He willingly laid down his life. And that was the ultimate expression of his love for us. You know the verse, John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, than one lay down his life for, for his friends. I was talking to a friend the other day who told me a story about when he was young. I won't name him, but this was just such a tremendous illustration that the Lord used to help me see this passage. His family had a septic tank problem whenever he was young, and so they dug up the top of the tank, and if you've ever had a septic tank problem and stood over the top of the tank, whenever they take the lid of that thing off, you know exactly what is coming, right? You know what that smells like. And standing over the hole with the top off, his, his father looked at him, he, he said, and said, you're the smallest, you have to go down in there and see what's going on. And after some cajoling, he, he knew that no one else was, was, would fit. So he went. And, but before he went, he said he put on his full snowsuit, complete with gloves, boots, and goggles. And before he went in, he held his breath, and down he went. In the same way, Jesus Christ entered the septic tank of the world. And he had to go because he was the only one who would fit. But it took no cajoling for him. He took upon himself human nature, not a snowsuit, and he willingly and joyfully plunged into the septic tank. And whenever he was there, he was searching for something. He came for something specific. He came for his bride. And down in the midst of the muck, he laid hold of it. And then out of the septic tank, he rose. And if it were not enough... For the eternal God to take upon himself the lowly position of a bond slave in human flesh unto death, this says he went all the way to the cross. From deity to slave, from God to man, from man to death, and from death to crucifixion. <clears throat> Look if you would at verse 8. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even... Death on the cross. Jesus did not just die any death, but a disgraceful crucifixion. That's like, like saying, you know, um, that dinner was bad, really bad. Um, or that ice cream was good, really good. The verse says, even death on the cross. It's, that was for emphasis because it was so despised. He died by the cross. Stripped and beaten. 
hung publicly by the road, displayed, categorized with transgressors and filthy thieves and murderers. The king of glory was suspended by nails, and those nails were lubricated by his own blood. In what began in heaven, this song that begins in heaven, with all of its glories, now hits its bottom in the, in, in the cross. The first line, existing in the form of God. The last line of this first stanza, death on the cross. Even death on the cross. The one existing in the form of God always had this lowest point in his mind, even before he came. Every choice, every act, every thought led to this end. To use C.S. Lewis's analogy, the divine diver has now reached the bottom and his hands and his feet touch the slimy muck at the lake bed. And he opens his eyes, his eyes seeing the prize that he's diving for. As he sees it, he opens his lungs and breathes in the lake water deeply and dies. And it was all not just willingly, but joyfully that he did that. There was revulsion in him when he felt the mud and, the, and that soiled his person, but but there was a smile in his heart that, that he would have his prize that he descended for. But you know, that's not the end of the, of the hymn, is it? Verse 9 begins the, the next stanza, continues the song. We view it at verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him. It begins with, therefore, for this reason. The same Jesus who humbled himself and died, even death on the cross, will be exalted, lifted up above every name, above all of heaven and, and earth, and, and they, will, they will bow to him and worship him for, for all eternity. And the treasured ones that he rescued from the lake bottom will be glorified with him. Who's the centerpiece of heaven? Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 5, 6 through 10 says, And I beheld, and, and lo, in the midst of, of the throne, and the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. And it goes on in verse 7, He came and, and took the, the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And, and when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of their harps and golden vials full of odors, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred tongue and people and nation. And you have made us unto our God kings and priests, we shall reign on the earth. You know who's singing that song? You are. The treasure that wasn't much of a treasure, as Matt said when we first started, that was buried in the muck and in the pit, the slimy pit. And he set your feet on a rock. And not only did he set your feet on a rock, he takes you to heaven. I was telling Tracy this past week, the picture that came to my mind when I was thinking about this passage and 
and just what the Lord does for us was, I don't know why, there hasn't been any oil spills lately, but I just, I thought about the picture that you get typically to tug on your heartstrings to give in the cleanup effort where this little bird that's there, it's completely drenched in petroleum and oil. I mean, it can't fly. It's dirty. It's sick because the, the petroleum has already entered its bloodstream in some way. And then the, it's rescued. And the rescuers cleanse the bird and then they take meticulously take every single one of its feathers and they cleanse it, they clean it. They get all the distillates off of it and, and, and everything that's, that's there. And then you see the picture you know, of the seagull or whatever it was, which was once black and now it's, it's completely white and fluffy and restored to, to health again. And I just thought, that's a picture of what the Lord does for us. He pulls us up out of that, the muck and mire of our sin. He meticulously cleanses us. He goes into every crack and crevice where sin has been, every lustful thought or immoral deed or disobedience to parents or blasphemy to God. or No matter how deep it is, He can go. No matter how much time it takes, and He cleanses us. And he comes to us in, in this way. And it is an amazing picture of what our God's done for us. I want you to bow your heads just for a minute. I'm going to pray. But I want to close in this way. Just in preparation for prayer, just Close your eyes or bow your head. Just listen for a second. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's classic, there's a place where Christian gets to the gate of salvation and he knocks. He attempts to enter. And as he's, he's there, there are arrows that are still flying from him, from, from behind him, from, from the city of destruction where he's fleeing from. And, and he notices on the door there are bloodstains on the gate where many made it that far, but they were wounded before they, before they went in, before they, they went through the gate. Now many don't even make it to the gate. Thousands who die every day, there are thousands who die every day, that have never heard the news that I just shared with you. And there are a thousand more, though, like you, who have heard it. Come to the gate, the gate of decision, and they never go through. It's too hard for them. They think they have too much to give up, so, the, so they refuse to, to enter. And standing right at the door of salvation, they're, they're wounded by, by lies, and they slump over at the very threshold. And so I would just ask you, where are you standing today? Do you need to flee the city of destruction? Maybe you've never heard something like this before. Then you need to turn to someone and say, tell me more. Maybe you have heard, and maybe you know, and maybe you are standing there at that, that gate, but you've never walked through. You're at a gate of decision, and you have to choose.
whether you'll choose Christ or the world. Will you reject him who's done such so great a thing for you and walk away? Or will you say, I have nothing to offer you? But whatever kind of God this is, this is the kind of God that I need. And the path that you'll travel to get to him is a path of humility. You humble yourself before God. That's your task. And he'll lift you up. That's his. And he's not reluctant to do that. His heart is spring-loaded. Glance in his direction. Call upon his name. And he will run and meet you and cleanse every last feather of your sin-sick soul. Father, what an amazing passage. What do we say? What do we see something like this other than praise to the one who died for me. Praise you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Praise you for your sovereignty. Praise you for, for your glory. Praise you for your humility. Praise you for your happy heart and your joy in saving sinners. I need you, and so does everyone else here. May we give you joy by turning to you in Christ's name.